counters, hearers, and doers. James is the most practical of books for us as Christians today. While Hebrews focused on faith, James focuses on our application of the faith that we say we have. Our walk of faith, we will experience trials, giving us the opportunity to prove our relationship with Jesus and demonstrate his nature in us. We who have been hearers of the word have the opportunities each day to be doers of it. May our study of James cause us to show responsibility to his word, Pastor Mike. I'll explain the spelling of that word to you in a little while. So we've just completed Hebrews. In Hebrews, we saw that faith was defined. Chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And in verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We saw in chapter 11 a great hall of faith, an example of many people who lived by faith, and we've talked about those examples. And then in chapter 12, we saw a great starting point for our walk of faith. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and then sat down at the right hand on the throne of God, for consider him who endured. And we talked about considering Jesus as we went through that. So James is a very, very practical book. It's a book of applications. We'll be talking a lot about a lot of things that um, I know that you have shared with me have been part of your lives, things that you've dealt with. We will talk about things like this. Faith brings stability in our walk. Faith should cause us to exercise real love for each other. Faith, with faith, self-control is possible. Faith brings humility. Faith should cause us to live patiently. uh, James' premise was faith without works cannot be called faith. Um, I'm going to read you the introduction to James in the New King James Version of the Bible. Um, I just thought it was well said, and and I want to give it to you as kind of a summary, as kind of a kickoff. A point for this. So this is just from the, the particular uh, published book that I'm using. Faith without works cannot be called faith. Faith without works is dead. And, the, and a dead faith is worth, worse than no faith at all. Faith must work. It must produce. It must be visible. Verbal faith is not enough. Mental faith is insufficient. Faith must be there but it must be more. It must inspire action. Throughout this epistle to the Jewish believers, James integrates true faith and everyday practical experience by stressing that true faith must manifest itself in works of faith. Faith endures trials. Trials come and go, but a strong faith will face them head on and develop endurance. 
Faith understands temptations. It will not allow us to consent to our lust and slide into sin. Faith obeys the word. It will not merely hear and not do. Faith produces doers. Faith harbors no prejudice. For James, faith and favoritism cannot coexist. Faith displays itself in works. Faith is more than mere works. It is more than knowledge. It is demonstrated by obedience and is overtly responds to the promises of God. Faith controls the tongue. This small but immensely powerful part of the body must be held in check. Faith can do it. Faith acts wisely. It gives us the ability to choose wisdom that is heavenly and to shun wisdom that is earthly. Faith produces separation from the world and submission to God. It it provides us with the ability to resist the devil and humbly draw near to God. Finally, faith waits patiently for the coming of the Lord. Through trouble and trials, it stifles complaining. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this book. And Lord, uh, it is a pretty straightforward, simple book on how we should be living our lives. And so help us to glean from it and to apply it to our lives. James was written, starts off with his name, James, a bondservant. James was written by the half-brother of Jesus, who became a Christian after the resurrection All those years with his brother, half-brother, didn't persuade him, but the resurrection got him. No one probably knew Jesus better than James. He met the qualifications, though, of being an apostle like Paul, that he spent time with Jesus, and he could witness the things that needed to be witnessed. James comes on the scene in Acts chapter 12 after Peter was freed from prison. You remember he ran up to the door and knocked on the door and they were amazed that he had been released from prison. He says, go. He gave him the testimony of what happened. He says, go tell James and the brethren. So James at that point was already a leader in the church. In Acts 15, we see James at the council about those who were arguing over circumcision And we see that James gave a speech and he wrote a letter of those things that were important. And it also helps us to date this letter. There's two ideas. One is it's a very early letter. It was written in 48 or 49 because there's no mention of that council. There's no mention of that great dispute that happened there in Acts 15. would date it around 48 to 49. And, you know, as you read the book of James, because he's talking about so many very real things, I was wondering if James himself lived out what he's telling us to do, was he really a doer or was he just a hearer of the word? And so one of my favorite books, the ones I've kind of recommended to you before is Haley's Bible handbook. If you don't have one, you need to go back to the book table and have them get you one. It's the probably the second Bible book you should buy after your first Bible, okay? It is a good, concise little commentary. It has lots of history on it. Um, you might be saying and criticizing me even in your hearts right now. Gee, Pastor Mike, are you just going to sit up there and read books to us all night? Well, this one has one of the premises and one of the secrets that started Calvary Chapel years ago on page 814. Okay? And if you read that, you'll understand why Calvary Chapel grew into such a movement. 
It's on page 814. Um, it's probably on some other pages. This is an expanded version, but it's on 814 in this one. You can look it up or ask me after if you want to know what that was. So the story of James's martyrdom. Did the guy who write this letter believed in the things that he's going to tell us? According to Josephus and other early Christian fathers who wrote in the first and second century, shortly before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman army in AD 70, when Jews were in large number embracing Christianity, Ananias, the high priest, and the scribes and the Pharisees about the year AD 62 or AD 66 assembled the Sanhedrin and commanded James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, to proclaim from one of the galleries of the temple that Jesus was not the Messiah. But instead, James cried out that Jesus was the Son of God and judge of the world. Then his enraged enemies hurled him to the ground and stole him until a charitable citizen ended his suffering with a club while he was on his knees praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So... As we read that, know that he believed in what he said. So chapter 1, first, first, uh, first verse. James, the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which were scattered abroad, greetings. Very straightforward. He's a bondservant, a doulos, a slave by choice. I found it interesting that he didn't say, I'm an apostle, because a lot of the epistles start out with, I'm an apostle. He didn't say, I'm the real brother of Jesus. He didn't say, I'm the elder of the church of Jerusalem. He just said, I'm James, a servant of God. Twelve tribes, that's who he was ministering to. Paul was ministering to the Gentiles. James' work was to the dispersed uh, people of Jerusalem who have gone out from there because of the Roman persecution. So being a practical book, James gets right to the point with the first couple verses. And we've all read these. We've all had them read to us when we were going through trials by beautiful brothers and sisters in Christ who want to help us in their ministry and tell us that we shouldn't really worry and that we should just be joyful. But let's look at them one more time. My brothers, and that word is very clearly my brothers and sisters, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Important aspects of our Christian walk, of our daily life. Count it means to consider it, to judge it carefully, to reason it out with determination. First word up there. Are you a counter? Are you looking at the scriptures? Are you looking at these things? Are you really paying attention to what's going on in your lives? Are you counting it as something that God is doing in your life? That's what he is saying. Count it all joy. The all joy is cause for the highest joy. Nothing but joy. No, re, no room even for discouraged resignation. Have any of you ever been discouraged or resigned about your lot in life? I wrote down a few things here. I've had enough. 
I can't take it anymore. There are people in the church, lovely saints they are, who will say when you try to express your real feelings about that, oh, brother, don't grow weary in well-doing. You've heard it. (laughs) Don't grow weary in well-doing. You know, I I heard somebody express an illustration, how they were feeling, and the Lord spoke to them that verse. And the story went like this. I was running into the wind against the wind. Now, I'm going to elaborate and tell you the way I would say this story. I was running uphill in a valley against the wind, a Santa Ana wind. And I was running so hard that the, the um, landmarks on both sides of me weren't moving. And then I was knocked over by the wind. And I got up, and I was knocked over by the wind, and I got up. And I kept being knocked over by the wind until finally one time I just laid there and said... I'm just not going to get up again. I think all of us have been to that place. Do you know what James is telling us? Is you can't go there if you're a person of faith. If you're a person of faith in God and who he is, you have to have joy. No matter how hard it is, no matter what we're facing, we have to have that joy. And that's so important for all of us. And we'll see more of that as we go through the book. It says uh, that you'll fall into these trials. Fall means unexpectedly and surrounded by them. It's like sometimes you have a trial that no matter where you go, you just don't seem to be able to get out of it. It's just always there. And it's when you fall, not if you fall. Trials are going to come our way. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could say, oh, man, I had my last trial ever yesterday. <laughs> wouldn't that be a great thing to say? I had my last trial yesterday. I've been told I'll have no more. But we know better. Don't we know better? And trials in all of the different translations, um, the modern translations, do not use this as a temptation to sin, uh, even though trials can sometimes cause us to sin. And then in verse 3, the word knowing. It's by exercising ourselves in his word, we come to know. And the word's gnosko. It means we come to be Fully aware, have a full understanding by our involvement in the word, by our going through the word of God and coming to grips with the word of God, we can know that we have that. We can know that the testing of our faith works patience. Word for patience would be better translated endurance or steadfastness. Until we're perfect or full grown, until we're complete in every way, Nothing, not even one thing lacking is what it talks about. So James is setting the tone for his message with this example of trials. Faith without works cannot be faith. It's done by being a counter, by being a hearer, and by being a doer. Every one of us has trials Every one of us has unexpected events that come our way, and usually at the most inconvenient time. Amen. Amen. (laughs) 
Thursday, Wednesday, I'm not feeling good. I got a cold. So Thursday, I'm going to stay home and rest and take it easy. Friday, I'm going to study all day, but I'm going to really use Thursday to get rested. So I get all my books out that I've been reading, and I put out some outlines and things that I've got going on. I get it all set up. I take over the living room, and I've got all these things ready. I'm ready to go, and I sit down uh, to start the study. And I say, you know what? I think I'll go get a cup of coffee first. So I go in and get my second cup of coffee. And as I walk into the kitchen, squash, squash, and there's water on the floor. So immediately I want to blame my granddaughters. And I say, you know, somebody spilled water here, but I'll get it. So I got down, I started to wipe it up. And I looked over, and right underneath the sink, there was water coming out of underneath the sink. So I opened it up, and sure enough, here, was, here came this water, and it was all, you could tell, something was wrong uh, under the sink. <laughs> and I just was getting ready to start that passage. So... Um, I called the plumber, and he came out, and he had to run a snake, and we had a couple other things to do. But those trials come when you just don't need them, you know. So by the time the plumber got there and we got all the mess cleaned up and stuff like that, you know, a couple hours had slipped away. But the purpose of the trial is endurance and steadfastness and consistency. And that, those words speak volumes of who we are as Christians. If you can go through a trial... If you can handle it well, people are watching you. People in our church are watching you. People outside are watching you. People in your family are watching you on how you're going to handle those things. And when those characteristics are related back to our faith, when we can say, that's because I believe in Jesus, then God is glorified and Christ is glorified and Christianity is glorified when we endure and we remain steadfast. And when people ask you, hey, how in the world did you go through that? You can sit there and say, well, it's because of my faith in Jesus Christ. How in the world can you continue to live in that condition? Well, it's because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And so as I look at your stories and know the things that are going on, I can can look at Bill and say, Bill, how did you get through that thing with your eye? And, you know, I've asked him several times, forgive me, Marty. I've asked him several times, is the dog still alive? You know? But the dog is alive. Bill has grown through it. You know, I've, I've been amazed since I've met Norm for the first time. And I'm amazed at his beautiful wife, Heidi, and how she continues to do it with a smile. That's amazing. You know, I, I look over here at Linda, who's a cancer survivor, and I say, what a testimony she is to what God has done for us. And I look around at all of you have a story that I could tell because you are steadfast, you're immovable, you brought glory to God in the things that you face. What an amazing thing. But faith is not produced by trials. And that's what he's saying here. Your faith is tested by the trial, not produced by it. How do we get strong faith to endure and to be steadfast? That's the question that James is going to help us to answer. If trials do not produce faith, then faith, then what does? Romans tells us clearly, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is built up as we hear and understand and we put our trust in God. One commentator had this to say, if we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. In Hebrews, we saw that endurance and obedience were key components of faith that was described there. 
God does not give us rights, but he gives us responsibilities. And I really thought about that word. And as I was thinking about it, and I saw put it in that little paragraph, responsibility. For us as Christian, we should respond to God because of his great love for us with our abilities. So if you have a responsibility that comes from God, it's because you're responding to his great love for you with your abilities and the things that you have to do. Responsibility. A new way to look at that word as you, as you take a look at it. James continues with another very practical application. Need wisdom? Any of you need wisdom? What are you going to do with the rest of your life? How's this problem going to get solved? You know, we tend to take on solving the problems before we really get to the Lord's um, direction on these things. We like to take them on ourselves. So James gives us the next most wisest thing we could do. If you lack wisdom in verse 5, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We saw that the trial was to prove our faith, and it was to cause us to become stable and to be able to endure. Need wisdom? Ask God, it's given to us freely. Well, I've been asking God for wisdom, but I just don't seem to be getting it. And you say it's freely given? Yes, it's very freely given right here. But we won't go to it. We will do everything we can but to dig into his word to find the answers to our trials and our problems and things we've got going on. We will look for counsel outside. We will read books on different subjects. But we will just not go in here and find the answers. And I think the answers are in there. Many times we don't even ask for wisdom until the trial has beset us and it's on top of us. And then we seek counsel from other places. But we should seek it from the Lord and his word. I like the word there. It says he gives it to you without reproach. That was interesting to try to figure. I've read that before. I never really stopped to think what that means. That means he gives it to you and he doesn't say, it's been here all along. And if you would have been reading your Bible, you would have known not to do that. He doesn't give it to you with a Sunday school lesson to go with it. He doesn't give it to you and say, you know, I told you, you know, four years ago when you read through uh, Proverbs that this would happen if you did that. He doesn't do that to you. He just gives you the wisdom. He'll bring you back to those things. How important wisdom is, just look at the Proverbs, the Psalms, the Kings. Solomon prayed for it, and he got more than he asked for. He requested, and, the, and, the, and what, what James is telling us is ask for wisdom, not knowledge. And the difference is that many of you have a lot of knowledge on subjects, but the wise use of that knowledge is what he's telling us to do. You need to do that. When we ask in faith, we need to believe that God loves us and wants to give us good things. We have to believe that he is sovereign and we have to believe in his written word. 
And we can't be double-minded about it when we go to God for these things. Um, We struggle sometimes. Sometimes I struggle over the things that we're facing, the different issues that we're facing, things that are going on. But I can't be double-minded about it. I'd like to be like the man uh, that came to Jesus in Mark 9 and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's not double-minded. He believes. He doesn't believe enough. He doesn't believe strong enough. And sometimes I think that's what we need to to pray. He wasn't double-minded. He believed. In verses 9 to 11, whether a lowly brother or a rich person, we are equal in God's sights. Verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner will the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beautiful appearance perish. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. He illustrates their equality in that no matter how beautiful a person is, no matter how beautiful the flower is, the rich will fade away. And I think that's so important for us. And I think that's really a great thing, I think, with your guys' testimony when you talked about the good and the, and the not so good, that, that we can all identify with that, that we are a family. When the kids were talking and they were thanking you for your being there for them, for your support, the prayers, and so on and so forth, all I could hear in their words was, you guys are hospitable. And Sunday night Bible study now becoming Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks, but Sunday Night Bible Study has a tradition of being very hospitable. It's a welcoming place. It's a place for people to come and people will reach out and put their arms around you. People will sit with you at dinner. People will ask how they can help you and how they can pray for you. And so as I heard those kids talking about it, the hospitality that we've had, five years we've been involved with Youth Call, from the very first time the vision was shared with us, my heart was encouraged to reach out to them and help them. I've heard of you guys taking them out for dinner. I've heard of you taking them camping, midnight walks through strange woods and places. Uh, lots of things that you have done with them. But you've been like a family to them and you've supported them. And so rich or poor, in God's eyes, we're all the same. And then he starts the next section, or he ends this last session with a blessing. And it sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man who endures temptations, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. One of the things about the book of James, if you read it, and I heard somebody tell me today they sat down and read the book of James. That touches my heart. Pastor Brandon and I say, when somebody comes to us and says, I've read ahead, I know where we're going, 15 minutes, 20 at the most, the book of James. Let's read it over for um, daily for three weeks and see what we can glean from it. So anyhow, whoever said that, I won't, I won't put you on the spot. Thank you for encouraging me tonight. Um, but temptation to sin is different than the trials of verse 2. Um, these, this is the temptation to do things that are not right, things that are wrong, uh, that we face as Christian. Um, as, we're, as we preserve through temptation, we are approved. As we go through those different temptations, we get stronger and stronger. And we will be rewarded 
as the work of God becomes more and more evident in our lives through our resistance of temptation. The testing of our faith in verse 3 prepares us and makes us ready to be approved on how we handle the temptation to sin. And for the guys who come to the men's study, they've heard this before, but I'll remind them, it's not the first click. It's the second click that gets you in trouble on the Internet. It's not that first click of those ads going down the side of the page, guys. It's the second click that gets you in trouble. And that's what this is talking about. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he'll turn it off. And if you have to turn off your computer, throw it away, get rid of it, like they did in fire. I think it was fireproof when he took it outside and beat it up with a baseball bat. Do it, you know. You're going to handle it. But he's going to tell us more about that. was verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren, my beloved brethren. God does not tempt with sin, or he does not tempt us to sin. Sin is not in God's nature. It's obvious from this contents here that James is talking of dealing with temptations that lead to sin. Uh, literally in the Greek, it's God is unversed in sin. God doesn't know anything about sin except that it kills and destroys the relationship that he wants to have with man. But he is unversed in it. He is, he is um, unable to, uh, to, to move forward. And he can't tempt us with sin. And we're blessed if, we're, if we endure or remain steadfast. We remain abiding in Christ as we read in John 15. So don't blame God. How many of us have blamed God for our trials or for things we've gotten in? We are drawn away, it's very clear, by our own lust and greed. We are led into sin, and sin brings us to death from God by our sinful nature. We need to call it what it is. We need to return to God. We need to repent. And by faith, we need to ask him to cleanse us. We'll see a little bit about that as we go on. Death stands in striking contrast to the crown of life that was promised in verse 12. We can have a crown of life or we can have death. And that's really the difference of what it is. Uh, The crown of life comes by the patience and endurance that we talked about in the first few verses. In James, uh, verse 16, James says, Don't be confused about this. Don't be confused. God's telling you the truth. James is telling you the truth right here. We're We're not tempted by God. We're drawn away by our own lust and by the things that we fight through. In verses 17 and 18, he gives the contrast that good comes from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or turning of shadow. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father of lights, the Father who created the lights, speaking of the sun and the stars, you know, they never go out. Even if you go outside and you want to look up and see the stars and the moon on a 
what you think is a clear night and they're just not there. They're shining somewhere else. They don't go out. That's the Father that he's talking about. He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world in John 9. And John wrote back to the church and said, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So there can't be any sin. There can't be any of of, um, that blaming him for those things. There's no turning with God. There's no shadow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think that verse was confirmed earlier tonight by someone. I love it when that stuff happens. Verse 18, he brought us forth. It was his will, his plan. Our salvation is the example of his good for us. God intends to do us good, not evil. He's not going to lead us into sin. He's going to bring us into good things. And he does it by the word of truth, by the gospel. James may be speaking of his own first generation when he talks about first fruits here. So that's probably very particular to the people he's, he's uh, writing to. So in verse 19, we get uh, therefore or wherefore, depending on which version of the Bible you have. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to... Oh, excuse me. So then, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every one of you be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Didn't want to leave you ladies out. For wrath of man does not come, does not produce the righteousness of God. So then in the King James, wherefore in the, uh, I'm sorry, so then in the New King James, wherefore in the King James Version, this you know in the New American Standard and know this in the English Standard Version. He's saying, know this, that you're bad, God's good. Because of that, these are some things that you need to do. These are the practical things that James wants for all of us. The idea is that since you know Evil comes from man's sinful nature and lustful deeds. And good comes from above, from God. Then be swift or ready to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Speak in such a way that others love to listen to you. Listen in such a way that others love to talk to you. That would be, wouldn't that be great? If we could live that out, speak in such a way that others love to listen to you. Listen in such a way that others love to speak to you. Listening to others and being slow to speak requires to us to put the other person first. When we do that, we automatically become slow to wrath. In verse 20, the wrath of man cannot produce good things of God. Sometimes our angry zeal in debating is as if we are jealous for the honor of God's righteousness. You know, we do not have to defend God. It's far from the reality of righteousness in God's sight. God, God's righteousness is different. In the next chapter, next week's study, we'll see in chapter 3, verse 18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You being angry and being um, um, disrespectful to others as you're arguing for the principles of God is not going to bring about the righteousness of God. It's basically what he's telling us there. And then in verse 21, almost like what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore lay aside 
all filthiness and overflowing of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Lay it aside carries with it the meaning of once and for all. Lay aside that sinful nature that we have and come under the Lord's control. It's to, um, it's, and it talks there about lay aside every um, overflow of wickedness. Excess of malice is what it's talking about, which arises from the malice of our wrath, our natural evil disposition towards one another. And isn't that amazing how it doesn't take much sometimes to set us off? And have you ever noticed, I know you guys haven't noticed this, I've noticed it, I've seen it in my, in my home, that sometimes we get so upset at the one who loves us the most, the people in our own family, the ones that we care about the most, the ones that we're pouring our life into, can turn on us in a moment and say things that are hurtful and things that are hard to do. That's what it's talking about here. That's what this wrathful of this overflow of wickedness uh, and this malice is talking about. It's the, uh, it's the malice of wrath that we have as people. And sometimes that happens in a church. People are best of friends. And then somebody says something. Somebody does something. Somebody went to dinner with somebody else and didn't invite them. And it, the list goes on, folks. And all of a sudden, we start sitting on different sides of the church because we can't get it together. That's the kind of stuff James is dealing with, is our relationships with each other. We can't do that. We'll see more of that as we get into the other chapters of this book. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow. That's Peter in his first letter saying almost exactly the same thing. Must have been evident in the church in the early days. I think it still is. Be clean by the Logos of God is what it's saying there about the imparted word. Jesus said to his disciples in John, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. His spoken word was cleaning them. He prayed in John 17 to the Father, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You want to be sanctified? then just spend a lot of time in the Word of God. You want to get rid of that stuff that's kind of hanging on you that you just don't seem to be shake, then spend more time in the Word of God, and it will come from you. The Word is being implanted in us, and it should remain in us. It should remind us of the parable of the sower. He went out to sow some seed, and some fell on the path, and some on the, the ground, and some with the tares, and some on the good soil. The enemy took some away. Some didn't get root and didn't grow. Um, the tares cho- uh, choked them out, and some were, were cut out that way. And then some produced 160 and 30. That's what we should be doing. Our hearts should be taking in the Word of God. Our hearts are good hearts because they're God's heart. So in verses 22 to 25, he brings in these words, the rest of our words for the study, doers and hearers. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his face, his natural face in a mirror. 
for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. We must be doers and not just hearers. To take comfort in the fact that you heard God's word when you haven't done it is what he's talking about there, deceiving yourself. And most of you, many of you, really have a good understanding of God's word. You've been going to church, you've been going through it a long time, and you have a good understanding. So to not be doers, you're defeating yourself. In the Greek and the Jewish culture that was at this time, it was it was um, um, probable that the people and common for them to hear a rabbi teach and become one of his followers. And you would follow him and you would try to live like he's living because he was living what he said. You were called to be a disciple and you called him rabbi or teacher. Jesus is looking for disciples and for doers and not just hearers. So be swift, ready to be a doer, not just to hear. Not do the word, but be doers. Systematically and continually is what's implied in the Greek. When you become a doer of the word of God, it should be something you're doing all the time. Um, As if it was your regular business, as if it's a normal day. And again, he's referring back to the Sermon on the Mount. So James was with Jesus most of his life probably was one of those people that was in the company with Mary, came to believe in Christ after the resurrection. He observed the harmony of Jesus' life with Jesus' words and how he lived his life. And so he argues the point that faith not expressed in deeds is not valuable at all. He urges us to be doers of the word, the implanted word of verse 21 not just the word incarnate, but the word logos of God, the word of God that we received into our hearts when we came. And then he uses those last few verses there. If any of you is religious, do these things. It's like hearing the word of God. He actually goes back and refers here to the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, if you hear the words and do them, you're like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. But if you hear my words and you don't do them, you're like the man who built his house upon the sand. You want a house that can withstand trials, storms of life. So I would pray this. Usually don't write my prayers out, but I felt I wanted to write this one out. I would pray, Lord, you asked me to give thanks in all things today. Because you know that true joy begins in the action of thanksgiving. Today, cause me to do your will, not mine, and let me desire to protect my joy at all costs. Today, open my life to joy in surrender and obedience. 